Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to another perspective, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2010 Air Force Academy grad who went on to become a nuclear physicist. During his stint at AFIT, Air Force Institute of Technology, he invented a gamma ray detector system. Not to mention, he developed a software using MATLAB. After proving his mettle in the nuclear uh, physics realm, he taught himself to code and from there became a research scientist working on natural language understanding machine learning models for Amazon's Alexa. He currently serves at Amazon as a principal applied scientist. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jack Fitzgerald. Great. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me here, Cadet Cormier. It's uh, great to be here back at the Academy. I live just uh, pretty close, actually. I can see the Academy from my house, <laughs> but uh, don't actually get a chance to come over here very often. So it's great to be here and, and definitely shout out to, uh, to Nate, Nate Dial, my yeah. classmate, for making the introduction. It was great to hear his interview. Definitely recommend people check that out. And then, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, cool hearing all the other folks as well on this this podcast. So yeah, good to be here. like you said, huge shout out to Major Dial. He's been a huge help for me. But I guess to start things off, um, I I looked into your your yearbook. I tend to do this with <laughs> certain things, certain people, um, and I found your yearbook quote mm. and your picture as well. I don't have your picture pulled up, but. Um, it says, far better is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they live in a gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. Mm-hmm. And that's from Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. And I think that's a very interesting quote to um, leave the academy with, because... The sentiment that I get from this is it's kind of like the idea of it's better to, you know, feel the ups and downs in life than nothing at all. And you definitely feel those here, whether you're appreciative or cynical about them. And it sounds like to be quoting that you're appreciative of for it. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you chose that if I. Missed yeah, the mark at all. That's quite a throwback. I don't, I don't <laughs> actually remember picking that quote, but I'm, I'm glad I did. It's, it's a good one. One of my favorites uh, over my life. I think, yeah, you, you kind of hit the essence. It's essentially that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt has another quote that's similar of, you know, it's better to be the, the guy in the arena rather mm-hmm. than uh, the, you know, audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's important to get out and try things. You'll, you'll fail a lot. And we'll probably hit this a lot through our interview of, uh, definitely in my life, I've had a, a lot of setbacks and failures and turned down for different things. Uh, but at the end, you know, you, you won't get the successes unless you're out there trying things and, and mm-hmm. going for new things. Yeah. yeah. Personally, I str- I've been like, I've been, I mentioned this in one of my uh, organizational behavior classes. Shout out to Captain Fonesbeck because he kind of pulled it out of me. But there, I mean, there's, there's just so many things in life. You're like, what are you measuring it by? 
like what are you measuring your success of life by like yeah. i think the the easy one is monetarily uh, i think a lot of people do that but value is something that is it's an interesting topic to kind of break down what do you actually value and it's it's a really difficult question and i'm trying to figure it out yeah. but yeah I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but that, that could turn into a long <laughs> yeah. discussion. But yeah, it's for sure for me. It's it's changed quite a bit. I think uh, you know to really sit back and be honest uh, mm-hmm. over time. Uh, at the academy, of course, you can. There are lots of metrics, right? Like you can measure your your grades or your military aptitude, or you, you get an actual rank of where you are compared to people. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very uh, interesting environment. It's different than than most most of the time in life. And, and certainly for me, over, over time, of course, uh, family was always important, but I think it's now you know, increasingly obvious to me that how important family is, and uh, particularly now with kids and mm-hmm. getting to spend time with them. So I think, uh, yeah, family, getting closer to God, you know, these, these sorts of things are really what's paramount. But mm-hmm. then, you know, other stuff is cool, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think you could uh, give a little background about yourself, what originally brought you to the academy, whether you have a military family background or, you know, the academy was just a really cool opportunity that you wanted to take advantage of? Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's it started probably around middle school time. So um, I guess stepping back, so my uh, grandfather was a fighter pilot. He flew in World War II, P-47s, and then through Vietnam with the uh, F-105s. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a cool story I can tell you about the F-105 here on on the Terrazzo if we get to that later. Uh, but uh, so he, uh, you know, went up to a uh, full bird colonel, though he unfortunately passed away before I was born. But, uh, you know, certainly his, his legacy lived on and uh, it was an influence for me for sure. And then uh, my dad has always been very active in aviation. So he has been heavily involved with ultralight aircraft and sort of light sport aircraft, uh, that sort of class. And he actually uh, makes videos about them. So uh, encourage everyone here to go check them out. So it's uh, fitsvideo.com. Uh, so he's also has a alter ego of the sky surfer and goes around different places in Kansas and uh, documents people uh, at these sort of small airfields and uh, small time aviation. So grew up in that kind of environment. So definitely had an eye toward aviation. And so that coupled with, you know, 9-11 happened when I was in uh, middle school. So that sort of catalyzed everything. All of my friends, we sort of directed toward, you know, military careers potentially. And so made the decision around middle school time that I wanted to come to the academy and then spent most of high school, as uh, people here listening know, you know, doing all the right stuff to mm-hmm. make sure you get, get an appointment. So... Uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of my background toward, toward getting in. Yeah. 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 So after the Academy, I'm sure there's a lot of cool stuff that we could cover while you're at the Academy. I understand you were an IP, um, also involved in Falcon sat, um, maybe some cadets that are interested in or doing that here now can maybe reach out to you, see what's going on. Yeah, I understand yeah, they totally. just launched Falcon sat 10. Was it? Oh, wow. I think yeah, I, I haven't kept track. But I yeah. think they just launched one, uh, but, uh, it's crazy. I, I remember, as a dually, they gave us a little presentation about it. And we have the Academy, not just the Air Force, just the Academy has more satellites in orbit than a lot of countries, mm. which is ridiculous. Right. But uh, yeah, so I say that to say, very interesting cadet career, but out of the scope of this uh, episode, after commissioning, 
you didn't get your desired AFSC. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could jump into that story? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, aviation was, was definitely a big aspect of my decision to, the, to come to the academy. That said, I, I did know from the beginning I would likely have problems with my eyesight. So I have a, a certain retina condi- condition where things like laser surgery or even just contacts and glasses aren't enough to get me to 2020. Mm. So I knew that coming in, though I sort of hoped, you know, maybe I can get a exception. Uh, so it was more than just a waiver in my case. So exception to policy uh, was needed. So uh, I kind of had that on um, hopefully plan A, but then also went through the academy with the uh, backup plans in mind and, and definitely would, would recommend that to everybody uh, who's currently a cadet. I think a lot of things can happen. You know, a lot of my friends, different paths, you know, than, than what they had planned for um, once they went in into the, um, you know, Air Force as an officer. So, um, yeah, I sort of had these multiple contingencies going along with physics being one of the major backups. So, so definitely made sure I spent a lot of time investing in my physics work uh, while I was at the academy. And also, I think just getting the most out of the academy experience. So, as you mentioned, I was able to be a soaring IP. And so I knew that, you know, if I didn't get to fly jets, at least I could get some free airtime uh, flying here at the academy and was able to get over 400 flights or so um, down at the airfield. So it was a great opportunity. And um, it was, you know, it turned out to be my only chance to be able to fly for the, for the Air Force. Uh, in quotes. <laughs> but, um, but so that was great. And so I definitely recommend folks, you know, make the best of the academy time because mm-hmm. you never know what will happen after you, after you finish. So, mm-hmm. so what did you, you move to, towards nuclear physicist? You're one of probably 10 physics majors in your, in your class. So that's what you got uh, assigned to. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time, I think the AFSCs have changed a little bit, but there was a nuclear physicist AFSC. Okay. And so I put that as my second choice after pilot. And then, so I actually did get a pilot for my, AFSC, but then, you know, couldn't get the exception to policy. So it fell back to the Mm. uh, physicist. Okay. Yeah. So on the topic of backup plans and thinking forward to various possible lengths of military service, I think this is a topic that I usually discuss with people because you, you're mandated to do at least five years, but depending on if you're a pilot, that could be 10, 12, Mm -hmm. or if you're just looking to get to retirement, that could be 20. So there's, right. there's a whole bunch of different um, avenues, but also it's interesting, interestingly important to understand if you want to achieve something, what are the prerequisites? Kind of like if you go back to applying for the academy, if you haven't gotten your nomination by this date, you can't get in um, with few exceptions to policy. So um, I'm sure those principles apply to choosing a career as well. So what, what, are, what are your experiences with that? So I think, yeah, it's good to sort of think in different major gates, uh, sort of. So uh, I think the big one, of course, is the five-year mark mm-hmm. uh, for Air Force. So that, that would be the earliest you can get out. Uh, and then you sort of have chunks of time associated with assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those range, you know, two to four years, typically-ish, you know, depends. But um, so those kind of are like natural stopping points potentially along the way uh, mm-hmm. where maybe you can punch out, uh, get out of the Air Force, do something else uh, or continue on. Um, so I think one thing I might have, looking back, wished I had done is 
sort of plan forward for more of the skill sets that uh, would uh, did benefit me later uh, on the outside. So particularly moving to like a big tech firm, you know, I started when I went to Amazon, I started as a product manager and then later became a scientist again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I probably would have, so I, I think I'm in my ultimate, you know, um, position as a scientist and I probably could have gotten there faster if I would have been more ready with uh, coding skills that I, I could have been working on as a, as an officer in the, in the air force. And it actually would have aligned pretty well with my physics work too. But, um, so I think, yeah, some of these, uh, skills people could develop along the way. Um, MBA is another common one that people do, you know, as a, when you're in the air force, you can sort of knock that out and then mm-hmm. it's already done by the time you get out. So, yeah, I think sort of this, uh, continuous development of skills, particularly the hard skills, um, is great along the way. Mm-hmm. So on your time at AFIT, I'm assuming you went there right after graduation. There mm-hmm. wasn't like a gap between. Right. Yep. Except for 60 days. Yeah. Um, so AFIT versus civilian grad school, what was the decision there? Yeah. So, so in my case, I didn't have a decision. So I only got <laughs> the AFIT uh, slot, uh, but I was initially initially disappointed with that. So I think being at a, a military school for the academy, I, I sort of thought, you know, this is going to be a continuation of what I've been doing for the past four years. And yeah. I was not excited at all about <laughs> that, that idea, uh, which turned out to be uh, totally wrong. So AFIT's way different than the academy. Um, and so I, I sort of had this, yeah, like I said, notion that I, I wanted to feel the civilian life or, you know, uh, get out, not wear a uniform, uh, all this kind of junk. But um, as it turns out, uh, AFIT was fantastic. So I'm, I'm really glad I, I went down that route. So my choice was either, you know, go to AFIT or just go straight into Air Force. Um, so uh, at AFIT, I think there are a few great things. So, so one is that you're there with other military folks primarily. There are a few civilians, but um, mostly military folks. So it's, it's actually really nice for the camaraderie there. So uh, you still have a lot of the good parts about the academy, so you know, it's still around people who are all doing the same thing. You're all working together, sort of trying to accomplish a yeah, goal same uh, mission together. Yeah. Uh, but then you you don't have all the extra, um, I don't know what the right term I should use, uh, hazing maybe is the oh, word yeah. here at the academy. <laughs> or, uh, but, you know, uh, sort of the, all the... Um, constraints that the academy has so you have way more freedom now that you're an officer mm-hmm. um and so you can uh yeah just spend a lot of time doing pursuing your your own things outside of outside of your time at AFIT uh so that was one thing and the, but then the other is that the AFIT education is really unique in a lot of ways so I did the nuclear engineering program where we actually were able to learn um, nuclear weapon design. Uh, so uh, get the secret clearance, and then there's a particular compartment of the secret clearance that you need to be able to learn um, weapon design. And so these sorts of aspects are, AVID's really the only place. Um, you know, in civilian schools, you can't do that sort of program. Mm. So um, some really unique uh, aspects of the curriculum there at AFIT. So I, I definitely enjoyed my time, uh, recommend it highly to anybody who's considering AFIT. It, it was excellent. Yeah, that is an interesting point because, I mean, inherently, like, I guess something that I related to, I, I recently inter- interviewed a EOD specialist 
And similarly, my my sponsors, shout out Don Bird. I know you're not listening to this, but <laughs> <laughs> he was a Navy nuke. Okay. And so yeah. those are two disciplines where you're kind of stuck in a vault. You can only study there. And it kind of seems like, yeah, these, these weapon systems, educations, routes, I don't know how you'd say it, but those are, that's the only place that you can't, you, you can't really do that in the civilian sector. Yeah. Yeah, it's, totally. it's an interesting point. Um, moving on to DTRA for the audience, what is this and what were you doing there? Yeah, uh, so I had not heard of it either b- mm-hmm. before I went there, but uh, yeah, DITRA is how you pronounce it. Um, so it stands for Defense Threat Reduction Agency. The charter for DITRA is that it's for uh, countering weapons of mass destruction. So it's a, a DOD agency, but it's a joint agency. So it's composed of folks from all of the branches of the military and then also civilians uh, mm-hmm. for DITRA. So they do quite a range of things. One is around sort of uh, treaty monitoring. So things like making sure that Russia is fulfilling their nuclear op- obligations. Um, they do things around R&D. So that's a little more where I was involved. So research and development uh, coming up with new uh, nuclear detectors or chemical detectors, things mm-hmm. like that. There's also a part that I was involved with, which is technical reach back. So this is doing any analysis related to seaburn stuff, so chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, high explosive, seaburny. Um, so lots of analysis there, intel type of work, uh, but basically anything around WMD and seaburny sorts of activities. Okay, and this was your assignment after AFIT? Right, right. That's, that's interesting because when you hear these people that get um, put into another organization that, I mean, I guess it's joint but it's it's it doesn't like seem like the air force you know what i mean yeah like when i, I interviewed colonel wickert he was a former aero department head he worked at darpa but mm-hmm. like in uniform and i think those are really interesting assignments yeah. because you're, you're what seems like the cutting edge because you're you know going above and beyond that sort of thing yeah 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 definitely similar similar to like a darpa type assignment but focused on wmd and c bernie type activities okay so yeah yeah, it was good. And I think um, one one thing that, as I was reflecting of time at DITRA, that st- stands out to me is that there's a lot you can do that's beyond your AFSC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one big lesson I learned during that time. So, so my division I started with was the modeling division. So essentially trying to figure out if you had a nuclear source, how would you be able to detect it and build computer models for that sort of thing? Uh, but, you know, I've, I found that interesting, but I also wanted to sort of do other things too. And really, if you just start talking to people and ask like, hey, I want to be involved with this other thing. Can I help out on the side? Most people say yes, <laughs> uh, particularly as an LT. Uh, people want to sort of help you grow and, and learn what you're doing and, and this sort of thing. And uh, so just by going around and asking to be involved in more things, uh, I was able to be a part of uh, security exercises, so out at different bases, uh, figuring out how to protect uh, assets there. Was able to go to Korea, uh, so be a part of exercises there in, in Korea, down in the, in the bunkers with the, the Korean uh, folks. And yeah, just lots of cool assignments. Uh, other ones, getting out with like uh, special forces folks, working with um, civil support teams. So National Guard has CSTs that do 
sea burning type of work uh, here in the States. Okay. Uh, so they have a sort of a joint um, or a, a dual, I forget what that's called, but title, title something. I, I don't remember all the details, but they're allowed to do some work in uh, U.S. soil, um, but using sort of the latest uh, sea burn technology uh, to be able to protect folks here in the U.S. from uh, WMD. So working with them. Um, yeah, all of these were sort of outside of my assigned scope, but mm -hmm. things that just by asking and sort of talking with people and meeting people was, was able to become a, a part of. So, yeah. What was it like to, to work in the realm of the kinetic ceiling or our like current kinetic ceiling? Is that ever like, I don't know, hurt you in the brain that you're constantly thinking about con like very dangerous things? Hmm. Tell me more. I'm not, I'm not familiar with this. Well, term. so I don't know. But if I think I was involved with nukes and stuff, there would be all these conversations and ideas communicated and what if scenarios of terrible things happening like a nuke hmm. being launched. Yeah. Was that ever, you know, hit you in the brain a certain way that, you know, like crap. I, I really like, I mean, I'm really happy that I'm able to contribute in this way, but this is... I'm thinking about this stuff way too much. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. Yeah. De it definitely colors how you see the world. Yeah. Uh, so for sure at DITRA, a lot of my work was modeling of what would happen after a, a nuclear weapon would go off mm -hmm. or various chemical weapons, different things there. And yeah, it definitely opens your eyes because you're, especially when you start to sort of map it onto your own place where you live or, or whatever. So a lot of time we were in the DC area, so we would say, okay, if a you know, nuke went off on the Capitol building, here's how, what the effects would be for all of DC. And you realize, oh, well, I would be totally wiped out, you know, mm -hmm. if this happened. Um, and it's sort of, it's like mildly humorous, but I, I still, uh, you know, think that way sometimes. So I think like, oh, well, you know, if Cheyenne Mountain got hit and I'm in Monument, you know, would I be okay? Mm -hmm. It depends where the wind's <laughs> going, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, definitely uh, it gives you a, a different outlook. But I think there's multiple sides, right? So um, because you're familiar with what the potential dangers could be, it also makes you feel good to know that you're preventing that from happening. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of my work was sort of uh, left of boom, we, we call it. So trying to prevent uh, mm -hmm. a weapon from going off. And so... Being a part of that was uh, very fulfilling to know that, um, you know, the technology we're developing and the SOPs and the, um, you know, the training we did um, could could prevent uh, that sort of thing from happening. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's weighty stuff, weighty stuff for sure. So moving on to separating, because to my understanding, you did your five and dive mm -hmm. beyond actually just going from civilian or military to civilian um what was the culture change for you because being in the academy then to your active duty service commitment that's 10 years of your life that you spend in a uniform engulfed in this culture what's it like coming here in a, a sports coat and you know yeah. leaving that part of your life behind Bring skills and stuff, but you know, that community's largely gone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess one thing is it was a, 
Definitely a tough decision. So like you mentioned, or, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, this is something I had been going for since middle school mm-hmm. and, you know, finally got into the academy and then, you know, got commission, went through all the, the difficulties here and, you know, got the commission finally sort of on the, on the path that I had been dreaming of for a long time. And I think, yeah, so it was a tough decision. At that point in my life, I was really interested in being an entrepreneur, which I ended up actually never doing yet, uh, though I still want to. Uh, but so I, I liked the sort of stuff I did, but this idea of building something from scratch and getting out there and being in the private sector was extremely enticing at, mm-hmm. at that time. Um, so I did kn- I did I was able to recognize the good things that I had I think uh, at that time so it made it a difficult decision as you mentioned there's a, a close knit culture in the military that you won't find anywhere else that I know of um, maybe like f- first responders or, or somebody like that but um, yeah definitely nothing even close to to what we have in in the military from a culture standpoint so and I recognized that at the time so it was part of the decision. And I think, yeah, uh, ultimately it came down to just I, I couldn't resist the idea of, of moving on and, and trying something new. But I will say, looking back, it doesn't just go away. So, for example, in a couple months, I'm going to meet up with my academy classmates, and we're going to do a ski trip out in Idaho. And I've kept in touch with, with tons of folks. So uh, the network and the connections don't stop. Uh, once you get out. So you, you still keep in touch with people. A lot of your best friends are made, you know, during this time or, you know, LT years, you know, when people are stor- still all uh, mostly, you know, either single, no kids or mm-hmm. different things like that. And um, so yeah, it continues. And yeah, it's, uh, and that network, in fact, was really valuable uh, when making the transition. So I think right when I got out, I just tried to cold apply to different companies and had pretty much zero success. Uh, it was only when I um, connected with one of my now good friends, uh, Stephen Pock. So he's he was an OSI guy. Um, so we actually met through church, but be- because we were both Air Force, I think it was easier to sort of immediately have the connection. And he preceded me to Amazon and was able to really uh, guide me and refer me there and, and mm-hmm. stuff to help me uh, sort of make, make the jump yeah. over. So yeah. I guess that's sort of the, the bottom line is that it doesn't stop. So the, all the community continues even after you get out. Out of my own curiosity, what, what sort of thing were you trying to do entrepreneurially? Yeah, at that time I knew I wanted something in tech. So I thought there could be some cool stuff in the physics realm. So my... Uh, work I did at AFIT was, though more defense-focused, it could be used for medical imaging as well. So, um, you know, for things like uh, CAT scans or PET scans, uh, maybe not PET, but CAT scans, CT scans. Um, so I was thinking maybe something along those lines, or, you know, that, that was the early days when I was starting to get into deep learning and machine learning, though at that time I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. But I knew probably there was something in that area that, that would be cool, so... Okay, you got invited to well referred to Amazon by your uh, your buddy, and how did that work in terms of gaining the skills? Because I mean, MATLAB is somewhat coding, heavily math based, but not necessarily right. something like Python or other 
coding languages. So was that a completely self-taught process, you know, maybe just doing classes online or something like that to supplement that or? Yeah, it's probably more what I should have done, but it's not <laughs> what I did. Yeah. Uh, so I think, well, so actually there was another decision point in there, which was a uh, full-time MBA. Uh, so that was the other one I looked at, which I thought would be needed to help me get the skills. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it turned it out, turned out it wasn't needed for the path that I went on. Uh, but I think that's a pretty common one. So maybe we can dwell there for a second. Yeah. Um, so most people I know, especially those who do five and dive, think that's sort of a natural progression to do. Like uh, that's the pivot. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, it can be great for, for a lot of folks. For me, I didn't really have much GI Bill because I went to AFIT. And so it would have been all in, you know, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars mm -hmm. or something to, to go to a in-person in program, which, but, you know, at that, to, at that time, I really thought that's what I, quote, needed to mm -hmm. do. Uh, in order to be successful. But um, so I actually had a full-time MBA offer and then got uh, the Amazon offer at the same time and uh, ultimately decided, oh, I'll just try try my luck, just go straight in and, and see what happens, uh, which turned out to work out well for me. Uh, but to answer your direct question, I actually started in a non-technical role at, at Amazon. So okay. I started as a product manager and for that, I was able to actually leverage a lot of the stuff I, I learned in, in the military, so in, in DITRA. So though I was a physicist, in effect, a lot of the work at DITRA was really project management, program management, uh, these sorts of things, and s contracting, um, these sorts of skills. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that actually translated really well uh, to Amazon where I first started. So I was in the retail business, worked on things like vendor management or profitability initiatives, had a sales team, um, and I had just a few folks on the technical side, so some engineers and uh, business intelligence folks. So I started to get a flavor of the private sector technical work there, but primarily, like I said, it was more business-focused, um, improving profits and losses, this sort of thing. So, mm, gotcha. So yeah, and then sort of learned on the job, the, the technical. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my good friend I grew up playing hockey with. His name's Jake Tebow. During my freshman year parents weekend, I was notified that Jake got into a severe hockey accident where he was paralyzed from the waist down with little hopes of walking again. Through the help of many generous people and a no quit attitude, he's been able to make great progress, but he still needs your help. If you want to check out his story and donate, his website is tbo14tough.com. That's T-B-O, the number 14tough.com. Or check out his Instagram, jake.tebo, to support his progress. Thanks. This means an absolute ton. Now back to the episode. So the separation went smoothly, largely because of your network. Um, you get into your time at Amazon, product manager. How does it move forward? Like what, what is the, what is the chronology of you at Amazon? Yeah, well, actually I'll, I'll maybe revise one thing you said. So, um, at the time it w it was not smooth. For, for <laughs> it sounds smooth yeah. in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I will say there were a lot of, um, disappointments in, in the separation process. So, mm -hmm. uh, I kind of just 
glazed over the fact that I applied to all these places, but yeah, just lots of rejections, lots of being turned down by places. I think it's difficult for private sector folks to understand the even just what you're talking about in your resume from a military perspective. Mm. Um, so, so definitely I recommend, you know, if you can connect with a veteran who's out there uh, already there just to like translate the <laughs> militaries into, you know, something that people can understand on the outside. But yeah, definitely um, there were a lot of yeah setbacks and disappointments, but it, in the end turned out well. And, and definitely, uh, like I said, recommend finding people in, in your network who are ahead of you to, to help you along the way, myself included. So if anyone's listening and, um, you know, is about to make that jump, definitely happy to, to help there. But, uh, but yeah, to your, to your question, I think the progression at Amazon, mine was a little unique because most people sort of stay on a track, uh, similar to the Air Force. So uh, most people stay as a product manager and just grow in that. So they'll either become a manager uh, and grow their scope over time, maybe manage more people or they stay as an individual contributor, again, grow their scope and work on bigger and bigger programs and stuff like that. Um, but in my case, I actually sort of did quite a few switches uh, of job code. So started as a product manager, was also a people manager, and then switched to science. So came over to Alexa in 2017. And um, as we mentioned a little bit, had to learn a lot of stuff on, on the job. Mm -hmm. So um, had to learn how to code, so learned Python, and also learned all of like deep learning and machine learning. So yeah, did that sort of as I was a product manager and made the switch over. Um, and then also have been both a manager and a individual contributor as a scientist. Mm -hmm. But so yeah, a little non-standard for me, but uh, that's one of the cool things about Amazon is that you can, there are op opportunities to try a lot of new things, move around to different products and services and, and that sort of thing. So but yeah, I think I'm mostly locked in for the near term, at least uh, in this area of generative AI and large language models and, and this type of work. Mm -hmm. As the subject matter expert of this topic of generative AI and language models, um, I think it would be useful to maybe shed some light on what they are as someone who actually does them because we're given briefs here. I don't know. It, it touches on it, but it's because it's a slideshow. It doesn't really resonate very well. Um, maybe tie what you're doing to what it is and hopefully it'll stick for me and the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I would say AI is a broad field. So Large language models are one technique that's within the broad field of AI. In the past, things were structured around specific tasks, typically. So you would have maybe a model that does email classification is a classic case. Uh, so this would be- Like filter your inbox or spam, something. A spam yeah. or not, you know, these sorts of things. Or maybe you have an image classifier. So is a image, um, you know, able to be shown or not, you know, uh, toxic or not. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of classification use cases uh, in the past. And when I actually started with, with Alexa, classification was more what I was doing. So we, the system typically works where, uh, for a spoken language understanding. So you have audio that comes in, audio's translated into text. And then once you have the text, you're trying to determine one would be the intent of the user. So are they trying to make a call or 
ask a question or set an alarm or whatever, mm. and then the entities uh, within that string. So, you know, is it to a call to mom or a timer for five minutes? Or, and so you're extracting these different parameters that then uh, get fed down. But a lot of this is pretty, in the past, was pretty bespoke, right? So you're, you're de designing this very tailored system for a specific task. And uh, th that's how things were when I, when I first started. And in fact, when I very first started, we were using older methods uh, before even moving to deep learning, uh, which is where things are uh, based now. So uh, the big change with deep learning is that now you can remove feature engineering is, is the term we use um, on our side. So feature engineering is a lot of this work around sort of transforming the data to be ready for the model. But mm -hmm. uh, with deep learning, you can get rid of a lot of that. So uh, essentially, you're you're taking an input, so this could be a, a sequence of text, or it could be uh, audio or pixels of an image, and you're finding out the relationship between all of those to, to each other. So uh, that's what happens through the, the network, um, the deep learning network, which we can get into more of those details if it's interesting. Um, so Sort of the net that I'm getting at is that the trend now is toward uniting a lot of these tasks into a single model. Uh, so this is the big exciting thing uh, recently. And there, there's this term generative AI. So I mentioned a lot of it in the past was uh, more classification, so encoders and this sort of work. So you'd take, take in some input and then just get like one of n outputs. Mm -hmm. uh, generative AI now has the ability to generate, so to create new things. So uh, the model can actually output text or output an image or uh, output different things uh, and has some level of creativity uh, within the model. So that's sort of one big thing. And then, like I mentioned, the multitask aspect. So now you can just have one model where you can feed in text and ask it to summarize, or you could feed in API definitions, ask it to call different software services, or you can feed in an image and a caption and ask it to interpret what it's seeing, or lots of different things and all just one model. So this is sort of the, has been the holy grail and is now something that we're uh, actually starting to see, which is very exciting. So for folks who've worked with, say, like ChatGPT, uh, you know that you can just sort of do lots of different things and it's just one model and it, and it all kind of works. So. So that's a big promise behind the latest advancements in, in AI. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I, I've dabbled with things myself. And I guess one, one, one thing I want to drive a little bit in nuances, like you mentioned, it'll generate something with a degree of creativity. So what do you mean by creativity? Is it novel? Um, like what, what's the metric of creativity in your, your mm. creation of this? It's a good question. Because I mean, yeah. like to my knowledge, it's just pulling from the internet. This is likely the next word based off of the data that it's been fed. Yeah. And so, um, like it's technically not novel if it's just pulling from somewhere else, but maybe there is some sort of component to it that is novel. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Yeah. Well, we could get a little philosophical there to say 
is anything that we say actually novel because yeah, we're, we're, words, just, yeah. We're, we're pulling ideas that other people have written down mm-hmm. and, and said to us, right? Um, so I think that sort of gets at the same answer. And it, yeah, maybe we can dive in a little bit to how the models are trained. So as you mentioned, we do take big data sets. So these can be composed of uh, web website data from across the entire internet, so terabytes of data. And we train on those typically doing causal language modeling. So this would be you have some chunk of text and the model predicts the next word mm-hmm. uh, one at a time. And so you train on that. Uh, you can also do things where you mask out some of the words and then have the model predict the masked out uh, words. But yeah, at the end of the day, we're, we're training on as much data as possible from all of the internet or other sources, you know, books, uh, different sources there. Mm-hmm. And so... I guess to, to answer your question, the creativity is more around synthesis. So being able to take in all that knowledge and form a succinct answer for, for whatever the task is. So yeah, is it really coming up with something new? I think that's, that's a pretty yeah, deep, yeah. deep question. Um, I guess we can maybe have different opinions on that. But uh, like I said, I think it's similar to what we do as humans. So we're, we're able to sort of ingest all this information and get down to the the real point of the matter for for the moment. Okay. And another question that comes to mind is bias in AI as well as computer programming. Um, because if you're training data sets on certain set of data, um, if there's, I don't know, some sort of trend in here that isn't accounted for, then what the model produces could have a reoccurring thing that was originally unaccounted for. Yeah. So I'm sure that's like a big concern for what you train your models on. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is a major, major field of, in our areas, um, at Amazon, we call it sort of under the umbrella of responsible AI is typically the term we use, but there are a few facets. So, so one would be, around what I'll call toxicity. So these would be things like, you know, profanity or pornography, these sorts of things, right? Um, So, you know, typically most of your deployments of a model would be by some business that that has a reputation. Mm. And so they just don't want any of that, right? They don't want the model to output any of those types of things. And so that's one angle to do. But um, what's interesting is in a lot of cases you actually you, you need the model to be able to understand those types of things. So you can't just totally leave out the data, but then you have to align the model so that it doesn't produce that type of data. So uh, that's sort of the, the tricky part because um, you, yeah, like I said, you don't want it to be totally unknown mm-hmm. to the model or it, it'll still mess up essentially uh, because yeah. it, it doesn't know what those things are. And, and so this, this, Issue of alignment is where a lot of the big breakthroughs have happened in the last mm, about one to two years, uh, I would say. And a lot of it's been around reinforcement learning. So uh, previously, reinforcement learning was more in the purview of things like mm, AlphaGo, if folks have heard of that. So that's uh, DeepMind, uh, you know, was able to beat you know, some of the best uh, Go players in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning is a little more like how, well, there's debate, but uh, in some ways more like how we uh, learn as humans. So you sort of try something 
either it works or it doesn't. So you get a reward or a penalty back and then you uh, sort of update your internal model and then try something new and then get a reward or penalty mm-hmm. back and uh, continue that process. So uh, folks were able to figure out how to do reinforcement learning for language modeling, uh, which enabled a lot of this alignment, uh, better alignment with, with the desired responsible outputs that we want from a model. So yeah, toxic, toxicity is one, but then there are also areas, you know, let's say around security. Uh, so um, maybe you're trained to know where a celebrity lives, but maybe you don't want your model to output that when somebody mm. asks. Um, there are all these sort of little edge cases and, and trying to solve them all at scale is, is difficult, but it, it all falls under this alignment problem, which uh, currently these techniques of learning from human feedback are uh, have proven to be really, really helpful there. That must be really interesting representing a company like Amazon that's at the cutting edge. And from what I understand is that when you're, when you're at the cutting edge, stuff breaks, things go wrong. And they're a lot, they're largely unforeseen because what you're working with has never been dealt with before. And so by nature of it being new, I'm sure there's so many checks and balances that get put in place to prevent something bad from happening, but say something bad does happen just because it's unforeseen. How would that like play out, do you think? I mean, it's largely yeah. largely hypothetical and lots of room to oh, no, elaborate no. on that. But Definitely not hypothetical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah it's a, I think this has been a big hindrance for generative AI um, until pretty recently. So... As I mentioned before, you know, with, with a lot of the more legacy systems, we use more like encoders. And so those, you, you sort of have a limited set of things that the model can do. So if you're just encoding the intent, those are the only options are these whatever, 100 intents or whatever you're working with. Um, so that was a relatively much more easy to deal with. However, in aggregate, a system like Alexa is still probabilistic. So there are a lot of these machine learning models coupled together. And so you have a lot of these uh, different problems that can happen. And I think that's been a big lesson for the overall field of software engineering, you know, the past, uh, you know, since machine learning has become more common in production is that you no longer have determinism. So things can happen that you're not expecting and, and you have to be ready to solve for them. So there are definitely things like guardrails you can put in place. So these would be systems around the model that can constrain what the model is able to do or detect if somebody's trying to break the system or be malicious mm. uh, with inputs. So definitely that's an approach. And then the core model itself, as I mentioned, we, we definitely try to improve that. But yeah, there are a lot of cool challenges around more what I'll call ML operations. Um, and so you want to be able to quickly respond to these types of vulnerabilities or errors as they come up and be able to really fast, you know, incorporate in, into the model or have the guardrails that, that can be there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. On that note, what sort of things moving forward can we, what sort of applications outside of say ChatGPT or photo or image, um, creation can we see AI being applied to? Yeah, 
so I think the ultimate goal is really anything that you do with the computer now could be served with AI. Um, so that's sort of the ultimate goal. And as I mentioned, the trend is now to move away from these specific task-specific models toward a, a single model that, that can work for most use cases. So um, yeah, we can sort of throw around some different examples, but uh, essentially the sky's the limit. So um, you know, example on the medical side, um, I was talking with, uh, with a friend who's, who's a doctor and he was just saying, yeah, you know, it'd be great to be able to scan through some of my old written notes and uh, ask the system about uh, a certain patient and have the system go through the notes and, you know, return a summary back to me or answer my question about a certain symptom. That that, you don't even you know. know. My dad, <laughs> <laughs> he gets so frustrated going to the doctors because it's like, these nurses are taking all these notes, but like <laughs> I have 10 people in one visit asking me the same question. Yeah, yep. So that would be a, I think a, a largely demanded, um, fix to the medical yeah. system. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think, we can go through a couple of other examples, but I think there's a lot of hyperbole around, you know, AI is going to take away all the jobs and mm-hmm. this sort of thing, which yeah, I, hear that. Um, I think is way overstated at this point. So the way I think about it, at least personally, is that it will serve just as a continuation of tools that we're starting to get used to, um, relatively speaking, recently with computers, right? So. You know, can you do you really want to go back to the point before you had uh, a laptop or a phone and have to do things with pen and paper again? Like, no, you know, nobody wants to to do that again. So I think uh, AI will be uh, will essentially form custom personalized tools that you can use to enhance your productivity for for whatever it is that you're you're doing. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the the ultimate vision, I think. Okay. This, yeah. Yeah, I know we've had this debate in our M5 periods where it was like character and honor brought us together for a discussion about mm. how we feel about AI being used in education. And it, I think my squadron has some informed opinions on it, like pretty smart tech people that, you know, like the calculator, that was revolutionary when that came out and teachers probably didn't feel like that was, yeah. you know, that's going to ruin learning. But, um, as time has proven, we're, we're using calculators while we take tests now. Yeah. And so, um, I guess <laughs> to get philosophical about it, society is all about having like, as time goes on, we want to have more output with less input. And these tools enable that. Yeah. And um, I think that's like the the idea, the concept at hand here with AI. Yeah. It's just scary because of like people talking about horror stories of like the Terminator happening mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. And you know it's important not to scoff at those concerns. I think we we do need to be very careful how these. Systems are deployed, particularly now with uh, generative AI, we are able to connect that with other software services. So you can have a model that can make calls uh, to other systems. And and now, you know, you can imagine how that model could now reach out and and do a lot of different things across the web. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we need to be cognizant of, of how these models are 
chained together and and used. But um, yeah, in general, I'm an optimist. So I think you know these tools will be for great things. On the education side, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty interested. I think there's some near-term issues for sure. I, I guess you probably have like uh, cheating ex- on essays yeah, and that sort of thing. Right, yeah, yeah, because a lot of these models now are getting to the point where it's at least by a human undetectable that it came from a model rather than a, a person writing it down. Um, is this much different than my day where, you know, you could pay somebody to write your essay or, <laughs> you know, th- these different things? Maybe not. Um, but, yeah, I think looking forward, though, I'm definitely excited on the academia front. The sort of ultimate vision is that maybe you could have a model that can actually pursue scientific inquiries. So um, maybe you have a certain idea of something, you know, a math proof that you want to do and your model can be at your side and Mm -hmm. sort of go through a bunch of different options and uh, try to think through, you know, how to construct this proof or or whatever. Right. Um, It's it's like a custom teacher almost. Yeah. That's like a, some mix of an assistant and a teacher and a colleague, you know, all, all there together with you, helping you, work through problems. And um, I think over time we'll serve more as sort of shepherds of these systems. So we'll say, Hey, I'm, I want to, you know, know about this thing, go research it for me. And it'll, you know, look through a bunch of stuff and give you some summarized answers back or these sorts of things. Mm. In that vein of, of the like essay thing, um, major Jason Lowry, I think I brought him up about like Mm -hmm. the, the software thesis that he published about a year ago. He's pretty active on LinkedIn. And uh, he recently, like, I think it was more of a criticism. I don't remember the post exactly, but he said something about citing, you know, giving people credit when you write an essay, that sort of thing. Um, Criticizing how these public figures, they never cite their speechwriters or Mm. anything like that. But, you know, it's such a problem that we have generative AI and this sort of thing. And, um, <laughs> and then if you scroll to the bottom, he cites that chat GPT four or something wrote the entire like the nice. message that he just posted. It yeah. was kind of funny, but, um, I think it just goes to show that there is a lot of assumptions about it that it is inherently bad, but if you like, I mean, like the comparison thing, if you look at, you know, the time that goes into assistant to write this, or you pay somebody to write this versus the same product that comes out of a generative AI model. Um, yeah. Like we're just becoming more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, um, that's a good way to think about it. It's ultimately freeing up people's time to focus on the things that matter most. Mm-hmm. Uh, off offloading the menial drudge drudge work uh, to the computer. Uh, The one aspect we didn't cover that I'm pretty excited about is open source. So lately, you know, a lot of the big breakthroughs have been OpenAI, Google. We've had some at Amazon. Mm -hmm. But, and those were with like lots of compute, very expensive models. But a lot of these smaller models are coming out in techniques where people can run stuff on their laptops or just with like one GPU 
and can actually get pretty good results. So I'm, I'm really excited about that trend uh, because that will really scale up now to tens of millions of people can, can try running these models for themselves and, and customize them and, and try different things. So I'm, I'm definitely excited about that trend. That would be the, the one that I'd add. Yeah. So you, yeah. what you're saying is it's becoming more accessible because you can run it off like an iPad rather than a supercomputer. Is what you're saying? Maybe not quite an iPad yet, but okay, yeah, okay. Uh, definitely like a desktop machine, you know, or something like that. Um, even laptop, actually. Apple just came out with a silicon, um, with a library to allow you to run models on their silicon mm-hmm. um, architecture. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited for that. Okay. And so to round out this episode, um, I think we've touched on a lot of interesting topics. Like I, you're, <laughs> these microphones are forcing me to not go down like philosophical routes every um, turn because I'm like, think about open source. Like I big advocate of open source rather than closed because I mean, yeah. if you map it to like a market, um, it's always more efficient coming up with better strategies and solutions to things. But besides the point, um, I really enjoyed speaking with you, but any advice for cadets that they don't usually hear? Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe after that we should touch a story I have. Finish <laughs> out with that, but, um, yeah, I think the one thing we haven't touched on, we sort of have, but is that what I learned during time in the military, you, you sort of have this, at least I did this mental model that things, there's a solid process of how things work. Uh, so you, you, you get your job code and that's it, you know, it drops and, and you're done, you know, that's your, what you get, or you get your, uh, assignment, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, you PCS or, or whatever. Right. Uh, but actually most of the military is very people driven. So, uh, if there's something going on that you don't like, or you want to change tra- trajectory, just try to reach out to people. Um, so, so find the people who's person who's in charge of whatever the thing is that you don't like or you want to change and you know just go talk to them uh so uh sometimes they'll say no they'll say no my hands are tied this is how things have to be but other times they'll say yeah you know we could make an exception here or change this process or do things differently so mm-hmm. um yeah i would definitely say no, don't don't hesitate to to try to um yeah re- reach out and make changes happen so yeah that's i guess keeps hopes up for you know the bureaucracy that we face here at the academy and hear about in the air force but it's good to hear i mean i think that stigma of bureaucracy obviously it's present but there needs to be kind of light shined on these these good parts of it as well yeah yeah um anything else that you want to touch on before we close this out yeah i'll I'll finish with my one uh (laughs) my one story from academy time so I mentioned my, my grandpa flew F-105s in yeah. Vietnam. So he uh, went up to 100, 100 sorties uh, over there in combat. And uh, so I definitely, you know, looking back, was, was proud of all, all that. Um, and so there's an F-105 that's out on the Terrazzo. Mm-hmm. And when I was a, a fourth classman, um, and my dad actually did this too. He, he briefly attended the academy as well. Um, but he was able to give me a decal, Gerald F. Fitzgerald. So that was my grandpa's name. And so I recruited a couple of my buddies, uh, fellow cadets, um, and we snuck out in the middle of the night 
uh, got a ladder and put it up on the side of oh the my F-105. Um, and so as fate would have it, my AOC was actually the officer of the day that, that day. And so he uh, saw us as we were out there and, um, you know, he, he found us a little bit later and he said, Hey, you know, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, you know, I just, uh, wanted to honor my, my grandfather. So just put this up and he said, okay, I'll let you leave it there for, uh, I don't know what he said, like a week. And then you got to take it down. It's still there. It is still there. Yeah. <laughs> no, because yesterday or two days ago, yep. I was in a part of core era. We were doing the Tizo tour where we go around, check out all yeah. the airplanes, apply what we've been learning throughout the course to a bunch of like old and new fighters. And, you know, I saw this Colonel Fitzgerald's like, yep. I don't know, it just pops out to me. I didn't, I didn't think to attach it to you, but that is actually, that's hilarious. That yep. It stayed around. Yeah. So I think what happened, so my AOC, uh, great guy, Major Kniep, he was an A-10 pilot. Um, so he kind of kept coming back to me and say, hey, I, st- I still see that, uh, that name up there. Say, <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, take it down in another week you know, or something <laughs> like that. Right. Uh, so we just kept going that way. And then uh, they actually repainted the F-105. And I guess the folks who did that thought it was supposed to be part yeah. of the, the thing and so it uh, became a permanent um you know part of the the uh, static display there so yeah definitely uh is pretty cool that's really so funny that. yeah it's so funny to hear how you know people just leave their mark on this place sometimes yeah yeah for sure well sir i really appreciate um your time and your expertise sharing um new technology hopefully it's informative too cadets as well as anybody else who's listening maybe grads will reach out to you um, helping with transitions but i just want to say thank you for um, your contribution to the show definitely yeah thanks for having me and definitely open an invitation for current cadets folks who are out anybody listening if you're interested in amazon or big tech or generative ai any of these things definitely uh welcome and yeah happy to talk with folks and yeah appreciate you having me it's it yeah. great to be here awesome thank you Hey, thanks for listening. Make sure to follow and leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show and see what the team is up to on our Instagram page for.the.zoomies as well as our website forthezoomies.com. Catch you on the next episode.